Equity is brought to you by ExaCrunch, that prodigious TechCrunch paywall you keep running into. You can break through that paywall at a steep discount if you use the promo code equity. If you do, you'll get access to our best stuff and you'll make equity look really good internally at the same time. Enough of that, let's start the show. Hello and welcome back to Equity. Guys, this is an equity shot. It's an emergency. It's an emergency because Robinhood finally filed to go public. And as you'll hear tomorrow morning, we just sent Natasha off onto vacation. So it is just Mr. Crichton and myself. But my gosh, Danny, I'm so excited. This is like dork Christmas. It's dork Christmas, except we're not getting free shares. No. No free no, gifts for us. But I think we've been waiting, what, two years for this? Three oh, so, years for this? So long. I feel like the entire time I've been at TechCrunch has been waiting for Robinhood to go public. Well, I mean, yeah. And then what's what's weird is normally here, I would kind of critique them and mock them for, for going public so late. But given what the company kind of has gone through in the last 15, 18 months, like growth terms, like regulatory issues, it's been so crazy. It kind of makes sense that they're going public on the other side of it. Anyways, Danny, let's kick off with some very high level numbers from the top of the S1. Can you spin us through... Some of the big ones. Well, Robinhood is really trying to project an image of, you know, widespread engagement and a lot, a lot of money. So their key numbers, as they define them, is net cumulative funded accounts, which they claim is 18 million. Monthly active users, 17.7 million. So obviously trying to show that everyone who has an account essentially is active. Yeah. They announced today that they had $81 billion of capital under custody. That's not necessarily traded, but they have within their accounts. And uh, according to the company, 50% of Robinhood customers are first-time investors, and there's some you know, legalese on how they describe that. The thing that I, that I take away from that more than anything is that it's just 18 million people, right? That's, that's a large number, but it's not like half the US. I mean, it does imply to me there could still be some growth out there for these companies if they're still trying to create more user accounts in kind of their domestic markets. So to me, it's a little bullish on the Robinhood front. Well, and you have to remember, you know, if you look at some of the stock numbers that I've seen, you know, it's single digit percentages of people in the United States actually directly own a share of stock, right? Most people own retirement accounts, which then own ETFs, which then own shares. Very, very few people just go and go buy GameStop, right? And, And Robinhood has really pioneered this vision that was kind of the original stock market, right? And then we had all these sort of API layers added on top of the financial system. But a, a return to form of individual investors buying stocks, researching them. In some cases, they're stonks. In some cases, they're mean stocks. But nonetheless, like people are definitely engaging. And um, Robinhood, I believe, is not just in the United States. Is that correct? Or am I a little off there? Oh, I think they're moving into the UK, but I don't think that went particularly well. Marginal. Yeah, yeah, I think we should really consider them a US-based company. I, I wouldn't be shocked if there was a little bit of international revenues here and there, but it's not the not, not, not material. Robinhood, back to Danny's point about the history of the stock market, really is kind of a modern day bucket shop. And I don't mean that really even as a diss. But Danny, should we dig into the uh, financial results? I'm sure everyone's chomping at the bit, as it were. Well, I mean, growth, growth is just the story of this company. It, it really is incredible. So Let's rewind to 2019. The company had $170 million in transaction-based revenue, so the fees that they make from buying and selling actual assets. That skyrocketed from $170 million in 2019 to $720 million in 2020. So I'm doing a quick math, like 4 or 5x growth right there. On top of that, they also had interest revenue. That's also gone up 3x from $70 million to $177 million in 2020. And then their other revenue almost doubled from $36 million to $61 million. So what you're totally looking at is in 2020, the company made about a billion dollars, 960 million top line in 2020. 
up from 277 million in 2019. So almost 4x revenue growth last year. Yeah. And then if you scale it and just look at Q1 2020 versus Q1 2021, the growth story just continues. In the first three months of this year, Robin had had revenues of 522.2 million, up from 127.6 in the year ago <laughs> period. I mean, that's a pace of growth that we just that I, I'm writing a piece about this right now for TC, but like that's like series A percentage growth, like really good series A percentage level growth. We don't see that at a company that's already at nine figures of revenue in a single quarter. And Danny, my takeaway, and we'll get to profitability and all that shit in a second, but like, wow, this really explains why everyone was just trying to do shovel money into Robinhood since the start of 2020. I mean, the, the growth it was posting is, I almost want to say, historic. Well, and not only that, when you compare it to Coinbase, which is another company that, you know, went public, what, in a direct listing just a couple of weeks ago, the same sort of story is there. I mean, what's nuts is how much money is coming in through these companies, right? So Coinbase went from uh, 45 billion under management to 122 billion under management in a quarter as well as the, the crypto winter, well, it was like a summer during the winter when there was this frenzy in Bitcoin and a lot of other tokens. So what, what amazes me is to see two major fintech companies focus on democratized finance, doing extraordinarily well, everyone's engaged, the growth is off the charts, but there are a couple of hangups, both regulatory and also in the company's uh, revenue concentration. So let's- Well, let's... on the regulatory point, Danny, before we get into the, the, the revenue stuff, just as a reminder, yesterday on Wednesday, Robinhood was hit with a $70 million kind of collection of fees and paybacks by FINRA. It's kind of regulatory body, if you will. And so, I, you know, people were asking on Twitter, including our, our own very dear Natasha, who should be on vacation, but was still on Twitter. She was like, why would you file an S1 the day after you got hit by a huge fine? And my read, Danny, is that they were just chomping at the bit to get this S1 out. And that was the last piece of trash they had to take out before they could have their party. I think that's exactly right. Um, a $70 million fine from the SEC. And uh, this was clearly a blocking transaction for filing the S1, right? So the yes. SEC has to approve that S1. Robinhood clearly was in communication with the SEC and realized that that was absolutely going to block them. And that's not the only thing they did. It was also pointed out in the IPO filing that the 20-year-old trader who uh, unfortunately committed suicide from his transactions on Robinhood settled for $730,000 according to the, the S1. So the company is also announcing that. Cheap. The company obviously cleared up a bunch of its regulatory challenges. It's also worked with the CFTC and some other agency bodies over the last couple of years to sort of clean stuff up. But there's a couple other challenges. Uh, one is clearly revenue concentration. Alex, the company makes a lot of money from Citadel. Yeah. If you want to follow along at home, and I always really recommend that you find an S1 document, pull it up and just scroll through it. It's always an educational experience. And it, it's really how Danny and I don't <laughs> fall super behind in the finance world. If you do pull up the Robinhood S1, scroll way down to page F-10, and you will see a very interesting kind of risk factor called concentration of credit risk. And essentially what we're looking at here in this little table is how much money Robinhood makes of its total revenue from different market makers. And there are four of them that have greater than 10% of, kind of Robinhood's revenue generation. And the most important one, Danny, as you can quickly see, is Citadel. It was 29% of Robinhood's revenue in 2019, which rose to 34% in 2020. So more than a third of its revenue came from Citadel. Now, What's weird is I should have already written a post about this because I knew this, but didn't actually know that I knew it because for quarters and quarters and quarters, I've been posting on TC about Robinhood's payment for order flow, transaction revenue, if you will, from different uh, sources. And if I had just done the smart thing of add up all the Citadel versus other sources, I could have given you basically the stat. I, I didn't think of it because I'm stupid. 
Anyways, the point is, Robinhood makes a lot of money from payment for order flow, as we all know, and Citadel is the key source of that. Now, another revenue concentration challenge, and this has got to be the first time I've seen this warning factor in the S1, is Dogecoin apparently is a massive moneymaker for Robinhood. So according to the company, 17% in the last quarter, so Q1 of 2021, 17% of total revenue was related to cryptocurrencies, of which 34% of that was Dogecoin related, up from 4%. And so the company, if you're doing a little bit of math, 6 to 7% of Robinhood's revenues comes from Dogecoin transactions alone in Q1. And I, I really want to say that I'm shocked by this, but I'm actually just not. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as a small data point, discussing the company's actual revenue generation, it says that the company does get, quote, transaction rebates for crypto trades. Now, this is different than payment for order flow as we think about it in, in the equities or stock market sense, but it certainly is a surprise to me. I, I, I would thought this would be much more revenue neutral on the crypto side of things. And, and if you hear a loud, a loud man <laughs> with a leaf blower, it's because we're doing this to be my gardeners are here. And that's kind of what it sounds like in my backyard right now. Anyways, that was absolutely fascinating to me. Danny, can we talk about options revenue compared to other sources of top line for the business? Because this to me is the real revenue concentration point. Yes. Awesome. So if you look at the company's <laughs> overall transaction-based revenues, the, the, the bulk of its top line, if you will, Options revenues rose from basically 60 million in the first three months of 2020 to 197.9 million in the first quarter of 2021. That is just an insane amount of money from options trading alone. Equities showed a similar rise of 31.6 million in the first quarter of last year to 133.3 million this year. But, you know, the company's options revenues were still the largest, essentially, uh, transaction revenue source by 50% in the first quarter of this year. And this is the, the thing we've been talking about forever with this company. It's giving people access to options who are often not very financially savvy, and it's making a lot of money by doing it, creating attention, and essentially, a, you know, the company letting more folks use options than it probably should. And it just got hit with a fine for this yesterday. So, like, on one hand, I'm like, wow, look at these numbers. On the other hand, I'm kind of like, ooh, ooh, oof, dangerous. Yeah. Well, and, and to be clear on the option side, um, the company also showed its breakdown of its assets. So $65 billion for equities in the three months ending uh, March 31st, $2 billion for options, so a, a tiny smidgen. And then cryptocurrencies, about $11.6 cash on hand, so it's just people not investing in anything, $7.6 billion on there. And the company says that they have about $5.5 billion on margin. That's how you get to this $80 billion total number. So options are a very, very tiny part of the asset mix, but a huge part of the revenue mix. And I, I think that that's going to be one of the secrets. Um, we haven't even talked about this, but the company lost $1.5 billion in Q1. Alex, you had some reasons for you know why that math is a little bit bad for from a Q1 perspective, but you know clearly some need to make some more money. And I think it's precisely the options and other kind of sophisticated instruments that they're going to focus on to build the revenue base. Let's push back on that a little bit, because the company actually did something very, very interesting in 2020, which is that it made money. Like Robinhood actually had a gap net income in 2020. Now, to be clear, it was $7.4 million off of revenue of uh, nearly a billion. So certainly it squeaked into profitability in a percentage of revenue term. But I mean, my gosh, good for it. You know, most tech companies, when they scale rapidly, lose more money. They don't suddenly get profitable. They don't show operating leverage. Robinhood did and points to it. But Danny's right. The company's $7.4 million 2020 uh, gap net income went to negative $1.444 billion in the first quarter of this year. So what the f*** happened? Well, if you recall during the GameStop brouhaha 
essentially the company had to go take on a bunch of extra capital to meet kind of like uh, reserve requirements. And one way that it did that was taking on a lot of convertible debt in February. And when it did that, it had to reprice based on our current rate, a lot of options and warrants and so forth that were already existing. And when it did that, it had to record enormous charge. A charge actually so large that it comes to $1.492 billion. And so what you're seeing there is the entire reason why the company's gap results look pretty terrible. I will say the company had, I believe, record adjusted profitability in the first quarter. So on one hand, worst quarter I've ever seen. On the other hand, best quarter Robinhood's ever had. And that, Danny, is, is why adjusted EBITDA will never die. One more stat on its economics before we talk about the IPO process. So the company's um, ARPU, average revenues per user, uh, increased from $65 in 2019 to $109 in 2020. And then the first three months of this year went up to $137. So 65, 108, 137. So on top of going from 5 million to 18 million users, its ARPU is more than doubled, which is the best kind of exponential growth you could want. More users and more money per user at the same time. That's an amazing company. And clearly, I think this is going to be a hot one. Alex, let's talk about the IPO. Okay. So we don't know a lot so far. We do know that it has a $100 million placeholder number. We know it's going to trade under the ticker symbol hood on the New York Stock Exchange. I was just trying to pull up valuation data, Danny, because I was trying to refresh my brain about where the company kind of ended up. And it's late 2020 Series G tranche one. We value the company at around 12 billion post. Now, then it raised some more Series G money. We don't really know what that was priced at. And then there was a bunch of other stuff, including some debt and da, 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 da. it's complicated. But I mean, at 12 billion, Robinhood's going to crush it, right? Because that would be 6x its Q1 run rate, which is not what it's going to trade for. So to me, the IPO process is really just a question of pricing. Like that's what we really care about. What is this thing worth? I, I don't know, but I bet you it's many ducats, like more than seven ducats. That's absolutely right. Well, let's do a couple of things. So first, obviously, we normally get a cap table. There are actually not a lot of information in the cap table. So clearly, yes. the company's going to have to fill that in. I think there was a little bit of a rush. And because of a lot of these late stage financings, they actually may not be fully up to date. So they'll file an amended return or amended S1 as we get close to the IPO. But the, the key fact is, is the company's going to reserve 35% of its IPO flow for retail investors through Robinhood. So Robinhood users can buy Robinhood stock to support Robinhood through the Robinhood app. It's a very closed system. And um, Alex, I actually, I, I think on one hand, it's actually really good, right? We want more access to IPOs. That's the argument for direct listings and a bunch of this stuff. I actually took it a little negatively. Like I actually took it as like, there's a sign that they think they're going to get a much better valuation from everyday retail investors than a sophisticated buying hedge fund institutional public. And I just, I think there's a little bit of a mixed signal there. More for me than I think most people would report. Jenny Crichton, are you, are you trying to tell me that retail investors are rubes? <laughs> because because that's, I mean, they are that's, bucket shopping, right? I mean, that's a known fact. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't take this as negatively as you do. And here's why: the the Robin Hood IPO is going to be an enormous media moment, right? Like this this company is going to have so much demand for for trading its shares. I don't think it needs the help from its own user base, many of whom are kind of peeved at the company, according to my Twitter feed, at least. So to me, it's a gimmick, but but a modestly wholesome gimmick, if that makes sense. I'm not too pessimistic about it. But I, I, I do want to say that Robinhood better not fucking crash on its IPO day when its own users are trying to trade in its IPO. Like it's had a history of breaking when it shouldn't, when it's most important to be up. 
So like they've kind of set themselves up for like a test, a stress test, if you will. And Danny, as a closing thought for me, this and I'll, I'll give you the baton to wrap us up. But like we have seen Coinbase explode. We have seen Robinhood post epic numbers. We've seen M1 Finance accrete huge amounts of, of AUM in the last year. Really, the story of 2020 and the COVID-19 has been a enterprise software story. But really, also, it's been a consumer fintech story. And I, I think the latter gets a little bit lost in the headlines at times. So it's fun to see Robinhood paint us such a clear picture of how consumer behavior changed last year. Actually, we're just going to wrap it up there. We're out of time. Guys, listen, Equity's back tomorrow morning with the regular show that we recorded before this because Robinhood screwed us. All right. We adore you. Bye. Bye.